So I remember back in high school days, going back a few years now, the dread that would always come over the room when the high school English teacher, uh, Mr. Redmond, would walk in and say, okay, we're going to do a unit on poetry. And I don't know how you all felt about poetry, but for some reason it's like, oh no, we're going to be dealing with all of these, you know, literary elements, meter and rhyme and metaphor and imagery. And you knew that the worst part was coming at the end when he would say, okay, how about if you write your own poetry now? And so we'd always have, you know, that challenge where we'd have to write our own poem. The good news is that none of the poetry that I actually wrote has survived. So you won't be hearing any of that as we start this next series on poetry. What I failed to realize, though, and in, in maybe I've, you know, as I've matured, is that poetry is really kind of cool. Because poetry is like artwork with words. And people who are poets are like, they can, they can take words and make a picture out of them. And using the different elements like imagery or like metaphor, but they create poetry that's really unique way of, of looking at an idea, and it's, it's a great thing. So I don't know how you feel personally about poetry. Maybe you're not a big fan of poetry, other than the fact you just spent about 20 minutes this morning reciting poetry with Chris as he played his guitar. Because poetry really is a part of our lives, and it's actually, I think, a gift from God in music, and you put that all together, and you create these songs, and it's just it's an incredible experience that we can have. Now, the book of Psalms in the Bible is actually a book of poetry, poetry that was set to music, and so we're going to go there this morning. We're going to look at the oldest song in the book, as far as the book of Psalms, and that's Psalm 90. Most of the uh, Psalms was written by David, but David was not the only author of the, these uh, songs, uh, there were others involved too, including Moses. In fact, Moses wrote one song that's included in the book, and this is it. We're going to look at it this morning. So this is a song or a poem by Moses. Now, this is not Moses' first song. You can actually go back to Exodus chapter 15. Right after the Israelites walked, out, uh, walked through the Red Sea, Moses and Miriam sat down and wrote a song. That was their first poem. This one appears somewhere in Moses' life after the Red Sea time when the Israelites were in Egypt. And then we also see that Moses writes another song in Deuteronomy 32 at the end of his life. And he writes this song and he teaches it to all of Israel so that they'll remember his, his final words to them, really. And then there's this really obscure verse, I think, in Revelation chapter 15, where it talks about in heaven that they're singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. And I don't know if it's one of these three songs that we get from Moses or if there's another one that Moses wrote that we don't know about, but we're going to find out about the end. Just kind of an interesting thing there. But we're going to look here at Psalms chapter 90. We don't really know what the occasion is. And there evidently is some occasion as, as we get to one of the verses there. It's like something's going on. We don't exactly know what. But this um, psalm really follows an interesting poetic structure. And so when we look at the, the, these psalms or these poems in the Bible, and we're going to be doing that, different authors uh, through the next several weeks here, it doesn't sound like poetry to us. Because poetry to us has got meter to it, and it's got rhyme to it. And, and as we read this, we don't sense that type of, of, of poetry. What we do get from these poems is we get the, the metaphors, the imagery, that type of thing. 
We're also crossing over language. So that means that anything that was said was actually, like, in this case, was in Hebrew. And, and it doesn't translate exactly, like, you know, keeping any type of, uh, of uh, um, rhyme or anything like that. But as we look at this, we can at least identify the, the structure of poetry. And so we're going to read through this chapter, identify it by how it's structured, but that's not really where I want to focus here. What I want to focus on is what is the theme. And I can remember that all the way back when I was in high school. Uh, good old Mr. Redman would, you know, we'd get done reading that poem, and he's okay, well, what was the author trying to convey here? What was the theme? What was this really all about? And and we'd all just sit there in silence, and he'd offer some suggestions, and you know, every once in a while, some brave kid would raise his hand. Well, what we want to do this morning is we want to look at the theme here. So as we read this, this is my challenge to you. What is the theme of this poem that Moses has written? Are there any key ideas or key words that keep showing up in this poem? And, and maybe is there a key line or a key verse that you can grab a hold of and say, oh, that's what this poem is about. So I'm issuing you that challenge as we get started this morning. Can you find the theme of that poem? So let's throw up this first slide here. Next, there we go. Remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about the book of Esther, how it was laid out in a chiastic form. It kind of went down one path, and then it turned around and reversed in the other path, and that they exactly mirrored each other. That's going to happen in this psalm as well. So these are going to be the first three things. God is the Lord, God is sovereign over man, and man provokes God's wrath. So read with me here. Psalm 90, verse number one. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, before the mountains were born, or or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that's the first thing we see, that God is the Lord. Verse number three, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. And so that is the second thing that we see here that God is sovereign over man. Verse number seven, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass and we fly away. And there's the third movement here, is that man provokes God's wrath. And as a result, his life is going to be very limited. And then this poem reverses and goes, follows the same line right back out there. And you can see it here. And so let's reading, and you can pick up on this. Verse number 11. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so man is responding to God's wrath. Okay, help us to live differently so we don't have to go there. Verse number 13, relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants and your splendor to their children. And here, man is appealing to God's sovereignty, okay? 
I don't want to experience your wrath, so I'm appealing to you as being sovereign God over my world so I don't have to experience this. And then he goes on and concludes it there in verse number 17. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. But it says, may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. And it gets to this last thing, not as God the Lord, God is actually our Lord. And so for all of you literary people, that is the structure here of Psalm 90. But we're going to set that aside now. And we're going to talk about this practically and say, okay, what is the theme, though, of this poem? What was the phrase or what were the words that popped up several times? Or maybe what was the key verse or the key line? Did you find anything as we went through there? Let me suggest one answer. How about the phrase, our days? You see that in verse number 9. You see it in verse number 10. You see it in verse number 12. You see it in verse number 14. And then you get a variation of it in verse number 15, just days, not our days. But this idea of our days, our days, our days, our days just keeps coming up. And if you had to pick a key line out of this poem, what would you pick? Here's what I've picked, and it's this. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. This is a poem about our days. This is a poem about our lives in the context of time. And this is a poem about time, and time affects us all. And so that really, this is a poem for us. Time affects all of us. Think about that. The number of times that you actually check your watch during a day. Somebody's done a study of that, and I forget what I read. It's like some incredible number. In fact, some of you have already checked your time here in the service. To say, okay, you know, he's got, okay, 20 minutes. I hope he's, he's going to keep moving along here. And we check this all the time. And we get up, you know, most of us get up to an alarm clock. Because that's part of our time. Uh, and we we're always conscious, like, okay, where do I need to be and when do I need to be there? What time does the bus come? What time do I need to clock in? Oh, am I going to make it in time for homeroom here? And we're constantly checking time, and we live in the context of time. In fact, it's like, okay, maybe you've already got something on the schedule for this afternoon. Oh, i got to be here at that, this time. What time is the game going to be on? And we go through this. All the time we're asking the question, how long is this going to take? Or when do I need to be there? But we really order our lives around time. Every single one of us. In fact, we started our service this morning. I don't know if you realize this, but there's a countdown clock that's showing right back there. And everybody on the stage can actually count it down because we start at the button on 11 o'clock. But we live in this context of time and we ask this question all the time, you know, like, what time do I need to be there, or how long will this take? But I want to encourage us to ask a different question here this morning. And the question is not what time, but the question is, how can I use my time? Because we all only get so much time, and the question is, how do I use my time more effectively? Sometimes we're like, well, how can I find more time in my day? I got bad news for you. You can't. You only get those 24 hours. You only get those 86,400 seconds. That sounds impressive, doesn't it? 
But how, that's not the question, how can I find more time in my day? The question is, how can I make the most of my time? Or how can I make the most of my day? And that's what Moses is addressing here in this poem, saying, hey, let's talk about how you can make the most of your days by making the most of each day. And so let's go back through this poem and let's extract four thoughts that can be helpful to us as we wrestle with this idea of time. And I'll tell you where we wrestle with the idea of time here in Michigan is right here in the summer. It's like it should, we should have more time, right? It's light longer and, and we've got this good weather and all that. And we just pack our schedules full to take advantage of it. Like I can actually go outside without freezing. Oh, yes, let's do something. Or I can go outside, you know, when it's, it's light outside. And so we just, summer should be this time like we kick back and relax and it's all nice and peace and calm. It doesn't work that way, does it? It's just as crazy and as hectic or maybe more so of other times of the year. But as we go through this poem, there's four thoughts here that I think can be helpful. So we're going to break down this poem a little bit differently from its structure. And we're going to kind of read this theme through the, pro, uh, through the poem. First of all, we need... An eternal perspective. We need an eternal perspective. And this is where Moses starts. Read with me verse number uh, one. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. So this goes beyond me. And this goes beyond now. Throughout all generations. Before the mountains were even born. That's before creation. Or before you brought forth this whole world. From everlasting to everlasting. You are God. And Moses starts with this idea here that in eternal, we need an eternal perspective from everlasting to everlasting. And as we look at time, time is somewhere in between those extremes that go on infinitely in every direction. But he gives us some theology here too as we go. And he tells us some things about God that are super helpful to us as we're trying to get this eternal perspective. First of all, he tells us what? That God is a creator. He created the world that we live in. He created actually this thing that we live within called time. And as the creator or as the author of it, he's going to be the one who can tell us how to best use it and how to best live within it. So we find out here that God is creator. We also find out that God is eternal. And this is one of the great attributes of God. God lives forever in the present tense. God has no past. And God has no future. Sometimes we'll say about God, he was, he is, and he is to come. Okay. But the fact is that he only was as we look at time. Because God just is. He lives outside of time. He's completely eternal. That's great comfort, by the way. Because he is in tomorrow, too. And, and what you might be fearing or dreading or worrying about, he's already there. That's what it means that God is eternal. So as we put our lives on this timeline, God's got the whole thing on either side of it. He has no beginning, no end. There's no source of God. He's self-existent. He's self-dependent. In fact, the fact that God is eternal tells us that God can't change. Because for us to change, we have to have time. And God has no time. So God can never change. He has no ability to even change because he doesn't have that uh, 
that piece of the equation there. So from everlasting to everlasting, our lives are found somewhere in between. It also tells us that he's sovereign. We, we saw that even in the structure. He created the world, rules the world, and he, and, and he orders the affairs of man. But then we're also told that he's holy. Verse number 70 says, We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. We have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. And you're like, well, I didn't see the word holy in there. You saw the word wrath in there. And wrath is a part of God's holiness. And sometimes when we talk about God's holiness, we say, well, God is holy, that means that he's perfect. That's true. But that's only part of the picture. When we say that God is holy, we mean that God is perfect. We also mean that God is separate, or he's the completely other from. God is unlike us nature. And so he's the holy other one. And, and, and we can add to that his majesty. And we can also add to that his wrath. And God's wrath is actually part of God's holiness. And we often think, well, wrath, that's where God gets angry. And we see that in these verses here. But wrath is bigger than that. Wrath is the fact that God says, this is who I am. And anything that's contrary to who I am can't stay here. Can't Keep existing. And God's wrath is his pushback against anything that's contrary to his nature. Now, there's anger involved in that because God's angered by that, but his wrath is part of his holiness. And so, as Moses says, teaches, or writes this poem, he says, no, God is holy too. And then I skipped over this, but in the very first part of the verse, it says that God is personal. He says what? He is our dwelling place. Now, it's interesting to me, these were very, as this was written and these Hebrews were wandering around the wilderness, they were very transient. They were picking up and moving from one place to the next place to the next place to the next place. And they didn't really have a place where they settled down that they could call home. And God says, oh, you don't need that because I will be your home. I personally will be your home. I will be the person, I mean, if you need some place to lock in and be secure, in your foundation, that's who I am. And so we get this theology lesson here, which gives us a, some insights to this eternity idea. And then we get a lesson in anthropology. A little bit about man. And what do we see about man as we go through here? We see that man is finite. He's like a speck in the universe. You turn people back to dust. That's all we are. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or a watch in the night. We are very limited people. Our lives are just this little tiny piece. We're just this little speck in the universe. And we fill up this little tiny place on the timeline when you put it in perspective of eternity. And so we find that, that man is finite. We also find that man is fragile. In verse number 5 and 6, we have some metaphor here in this poem, but it's what? It's man's like grass. You know, it springs up in the morning and lasts for the day and then kind of gets trampled on and kind of goes back to, to, you know, the ground at the end of the day. Very, very fragile. And, you know, it's not hard to see how fragile grass is. We haven't had rain for a while now. Go out and look at your yard. But man is fragile. It says man's life is also fleeting. We only have so many ticks. Verse number 10, our days may come to 70 years or 80 of our strength endures. That's it. They're not very long. They quickly pass away and we fly away. 
And so he gives us that perspective. And then this last one I think is really interesting. Man's life is frustrating. Look at verse number 9. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Or could you could put the word sigh in there. We finish with a That was hard. Or we finish with a I don't know if that really even mattered. Or or we finish with a Wish I would have done that better. But that's how life is so many times. We get to the end, and even get to the end of a day, and sometimes like, ah, that wasn't a great day. And so many man, people, mankind, get to the end of the day, and it's like, what was that all about? And so we have this perspective where we're comparing God and we're comparing man, and the question is like, okay, this is depressing. I'm only going to be here for a few days, you know, for a little bit. In fact, you know, like four, you know, like a day is like a thousand years to you, so that's not very long in the whole eternity picture. Um, I'm pretty fragile, and I know that, and, you know, it's fleeting, and I'm just frustrated all the time anyhow, and, boy, this is depressing. And Moses is like, no, 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 no. This isn't depressing. This isn't to give you despair. This is to say that if you'll take your life and put it in context of God's character, it will have meaning. And you can take the finiteness, you can take the fragility, you can take the fleetingness, you can take the frustration, and you can move past that because we have a God who is holy and eternal and sovereign, and that's what gives meaning to your life. And so as we look at this idea of how do we manage time, We need this eternal perspective because it leads to the next thing, which is what? It leads to our everyday, or excuse me, it leads to our earthly priorities. And that's where we come to the key verse, which says what? Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In Hebrew, this verse starts with with an adverb. You can put the word so in there. You can put the word therefore in there because That gives us a little bit more of a concept of what's going on. It's what Moses is saying here is because of all this that we just talked about, that informs us of how we should live our lives. Because if we just live it for ourselves here, well, it's going to be very limited. It's going to be very frustrating. It's a little tiny package here. But if we see God as part of this picture, then that informs how I prioritize my life. And so I'm going to change the context of my life against just what my little lifespan is here on this timeline. I'm going to say instead the context is the everlasting to the everlastingness of God. And so it helps us then to number our days. It helps us to make the most of our days or our years. Our 70 to 80, whatever we have. And it helps us, first of all, it helps us to make the most of our days. And every day has potential. When you got up this morning, this day that it was, it was laid out in front of you had potential. And everything in life that you've ever experienced has happened in the context of a day. You have a birthday that happened somewhere within the confines of a 24-hour section there. And then, the, you know, you have 
like the day you, that you went to school, or maybe you have the day that you uh, took your first steps. I'm getting things out of order there. Or maybe there's the day that you trusted Christ, or maybe there's the day that you met your husband or your wife. There's the day that you got married. There's the day that you had a kid. There's the day that maybe you retired. But everything that we have is in the context of a day. And so the challenge here, Moses is saying, hey, teach us to, n- to number our days, but to realize that every day has potential beyond that day because of the eternity, the eternality of God. So we need to make the most of our days because as we make the most of our days, that makes the most of our lives then. And so we make the most of our days, though, by learning to pack our days well. And so we can read the verse that way, too. We make the most of days by making the most of our moments. Every day needs to be used, managed, invested in well, so that every moment counts. I was thinking back several years ago, our daughter Allie moved out to California. She'd met the guy that she wanted to marry, and she was moving out there because he lived out there, and she left. But I remember we tried to pack up everything that we could get that was hers, and we put it into her Ford Focus. This is not my son. My son, you know, you could put the bar of soap in the back seat, and he was good to go. This is my daughter. Everything that she, and I can remember in the driveway, and like we didn't put anything in big boxes. Because, you know, then we wasted space. So everything was out of boxes. And I can still remember sticking things up, you know, like, okay, well, the hinge of the trunk, smash that too much. You know, like trying to, okay, this is the idea, though. Teach us to number our days. This is to, to have perspective is how do I use every part of my day? How do I pack it well so that I get the most out of it? How do I take these 86,400 seconds and make sure that it's all invested well? And then I've used those days on things that are the most important. And that's what it means to number our days is to say, okay, what's the most important thing that I need to do today as I see my day in the context of eternity? You may not be able to do everything today, so what's the most important thing that you do? And we start to order our lives in that direction. We can't do it all. So we need to make sure that we do what we're supposed to do, and how do we decide that? Well, we start working our way down. So our eternal perspective informs our earthly priorities, which then determine our everyday pursuits. And that's where this gets, I think, really, really practical. And I love the fact that it's Moses who's writing this, who spent 40 days or 40 years herding sheep. I would look at that and go, well, his life didn't really matter for much of anything. And he's like, no, 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 every, teach us to number of days. Teach us to take even our sheep-watching days and to make the most of them. And so it starts to inform our everyday pursuits. And here's what Moses says, and I think he gives us some examples here, starting in verse number 12. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to, to make the most of our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom. And that's the first thing we see is wisdom. And I love that we start here. Now, I need wisdom to live my days well. But what Moses is actually saying is, live your days well so you can get wisdom. And I think it goes both directions there. The idea, though, is I make good choices in the process of making good choices. I add to my wisdom. Or maybe I make even a bad choice. I can still add to my wisdom. But one of the ways that I use my days is to increase in wisdom. And so as we sit there and say, okay, how do I get everything done? Well, one question you need to ask our, we need to ask ourselves is, well, okay, how is this affecting the wisdom in my life? 
Does it have any depth to it at all? That it moves us in this direction? And so wisdom is something that we need to be pursuing on a daily basis. And wisdom simply is, is being skillful at life. But if you want to make the most of your day, it's like, okay, how can I grow in wisdom today? Secondly, another way to make the most of your day, you look at verse number 13, relent, Lord, how long will it be? And that's why we think this has some specific event that this is surrounded around. We just don't know what it is. But he says, have compassion on your servant. And he goes on here, and this is just a conversation with God, but his second thing is about your relationship with God. Here's the deal. Your life has no eternal significance outside of God. So if you want to order your days well, if you want to pack your days well, you need to make sure that there's that God element to your day. God is what takes your life and makes it more than a speck that doesn't have a whole lot of impact or influence. God is the one who takes that and expands that. So God has got to be a part of your life. Now, one of the things that we do sometimes when we get so busy is like, oh, Gosh, I got so much to do here. I don't have time for it. Like, I don't have time to read my Bible today. I don't have time to pray today. I, I don't have. Okay. But we're just excluding the eternal one who takes and uses times completely different than from what we do. And we've just shut him out. What we need to do is invite him in. See what he can do with our day. We keep reading there. Verse number 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. I like that word there. Satisfy? Satisfy us that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. For many years we have seen trouble. Here's another thing that we can pursue in our days. Satisfaction. Now, this is not self-indulgence. This is not, you know, like, what can I do for myself? But God did make us to find satisfaction. Now, that satisfaction is going to come from God. And his love. But this is an okay thing to pursue. Satisfaction. And he defines that or describes that satisfaction in terms of joy. And in terms of gladness. And I like that. You want to live your life well? Well, pursue gladness. Now pursue it in in the right boundaries. But this is what he's saying here. Verse number 16, may your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. And he brings in this family element. You want to live your life well? Well, it's family and it's faith and it's putting this all together. But I think you can pursue family and say this is a good way to live my life. In fact, this is one of my goals in life is that this becomes something that's shown to the next generation here. That... What I experience with God, I'm able to pass on to my children so they can see it too. And he finishes in verse number 15. He says, maybe the favor of the Lord rest on us. That would be in contrast to God's wrath. He says, hey, God, give me favor to do what? To establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So a meaningful work is something else that we can pursue. That has, and all of these things have eternal potential. And eternal significance. But a meaningful work, this last one here. And, and any work has meaning, by the way. You know, I appreciate what, what, having Tony up here earlier to talk about what he's doing with, with Mission Voice Network. But for a long time, Tony, you lived in this community and ran a business. Both of those are meaningful works. And they're different. But sometimes they're like, oh, you know, I have to go off and find this 
this, uh, you know, give my life to whatever. No, you need to give your life to where God's put you because whatever your job is, it has meaning. Whatever you do, there are people that are impacted for, for good by what you do, but, but you can give yourself to that meaningful work. And so we see this, this procession, okay, we, have, we get an eternal perspective that helps us sort out what our earthly priorities should be so that we have our everyday practices that we follow, but it's all supported by, and I'm putting this in parentheses, but it's supported by early morning prayer. What, what more, Moses is doing here is, God, I'm praying before I start this day. Help me to number it well. Help, help me to use it well. Uh, help me to pursue you well. Uh, help me to, to find gladness. Help me to find satisfaction. Help me to, to guide my family. All of these things are, are part of this prayer. And I love what it says there. Satisfy us in the morning. I don't want to wait to the end of the day. I want in the morning to, for you to teach us, to establish our work, to satisfy us. So our kids, in these verses that we just read, starting at verse number 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, these verses were actually a prayer. This isn't just like theological information. This poem, the last part of this poem is a prayer. And my challenge to us this morning is to make it a prayer for us as well. If you want to make the most of your time, well, how about if we start with this prayer? Where I get up in the morning, I say, okay, God, help me to number my day. Help me to make my day count. Help me to pack my day well. Uh, um, and, and by the way, God, you know, give me wisdom as I go through this. And, and teach me and help me to be open to what you're doing. And, and then, God, our relationship. Well, I, I really, you know, I want a relationship to grow. I, I want to experience your love and your compassion. And, and God, bring satisfaction, gladness, joy. I, I want those things to be a, a, a part of my life too. And, and help me to pursue those things, God. And then for, for, for my family, for, for my kids, uh, as we pursue you together. And then even as I do my work, God, I pray that you give me success. I pray that you bless me. I pray, pray that you help me with that. And, and then we couch it all in prayer. And then we can get to the end of that day and say, you know what? That day had some significance, not because I accomplished some great thing, but that day had significance because it was lived in the context of eternity. And so the question is not, what time is it? The question is not even, and we start to ask this as we get older, how much time do I have left? The question is this. How can I make the most of my time? We can make the most of our time by having an eternal perspective that informs our earthly priorities, which in turn determines our everyday pursuits as we start with that early morning prayer or as we seek God's help. And our lives become meaningful as we pursue the eternal. Let's pray. I thank you for your word and for just its practicality and how it speaks to us. We struggle with using our time well. And yet we have some ideas that you give us in Scripture. I pray that you just help us to apply that.
God, help us to number our days well. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you're here this morning, we've talked quite a bit throughout the course of the service of the gospel or what it, people trust in Christ. Your, your life is only going to be so long, and then there's a, a life that follows. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, invite him into your life. Your life has no eternal significance without him, and I invite you to invite him into your life. You can do that where you sit this morning. Just a prayer. Jesus, I know that you came for me, died for me, rose again. Please forgive me for my sins. Please come into my life. Please give me this eternal life that you promise. And then for those of you who have, for those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ, what, what do you need to do today? Maybe it's just stopping and evaluating how you're investing your life and asking the question, how, how, how does this fit? with my eternal perspective? How does this fit with the pursuits that I should be following? God, please teach us to number our days so that we can have a heart of wisdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Tony will be in the lobby if you want to connect with him. Jill will be at the information desk. You can connect with her if you're a guest. And I'd love to get you connected there. And uh, it's great to see you. Go out there and enjoy the great day today. And we'll be back next week to talk about our second poet, Deborah, in uh, Judges chapter 5. You want to get a head start on that. God bless you. Have a great day. You're dismissed.